Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this continuing education program entitled Scientific Updates to Improve Outcomes in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, Strategies to Care for Alzheimer's Patients During COVID-19. Today's topic is Clinical Trial Data Review and Analysis from AAIC 2020. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Biogen and is provided by Academic CME. My name is Dr. Richard Isaacson. I'm director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York Presbyterian. I'm an associate professor of neurology and assistant dean of faculty. Uh, it gives me great pleasure today. I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Dr. Marwan Sabah. Uh, he is the Camille and Larry Ruvo Endowed Chair for Brain Health. He's also the director of the Cleveland Clinic Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health in Las Vegas, Nevada, and a collaborator on uh, programs in terms of uh, an Alzheimer's a prevention center that they recently started, super excited about that. Uh, a, a mentor has provided so much education and, uh, and uh, help to me, so thank you, Marwan. Uh, and I, I guess I get to learn from you again because I get to talk to you about uh, everything that went on at AIC this year. And, you know, talk about the uh, impact of COVID-19, uh, not just on patients and, and, and healthcare, but talk about the impact on conferences. AIC this year was completely virtual. Um, so I got to kind of sit right here actually and uh, learn and, and watch and, and uh, it was recorded and uh, that was helpful. Uh, registration was, uh, I believe, free for everybody. So the, the attendance was really great. Um, go on, um, first of all, how are you doing? How's, your, uh, how's, uh, how's things going? And um, what kind of stood out um, for you at AIC this year um, that maybe we can talk about first? So I, I have to tell you, Richard, I commend the Alzheimer's Association for a pivot like they did and made it a very successful conference. The typical attendance is somewhere about six to 8,000 people. They had 35,000 people yeah. from 160 countries. So good for them. Yeah. Uh, the, it was a little harder to follow because you're not in the conference hall, but there was a lot of things going on. I took away a few things that are very important, at least from the clinical trial standpoint. One is, uh, I was sad to hear that Diane reported out um, their negative results. Diane is the dominantly inherited Alzheimer network. So for your audience, uh, Diane uh, in, in, enrolled autosomal dominant, the PS1 and PS2 families in the United States and enrolled them, uh, which was just by itself as a huge milestone, and then enrolled them in a three-arm clinical trial uh, both showing, uh, and in this case, the, the clinical trial was uh, solanezumab and I think gantanerumab, if my memory serves me correctly, and both arms reported negative results, meaning that it did not improve their outcomes, which is a real problem and a real sad thing. But, you know, when you dig deep into it, it's hard. To, there's a lot of things to interpret out of those data. So that's the big first interpretation from the AIC. The second one, I think the one that caught the most attention was about the uh, biomarkers, PTAU-217, and then we'll, there's a lot of other things to talk about, Richard, but it was a very rich and full conference despite the fact that nobody went to Amsterdam, Netherlands, so. Yeah, I um, would have loved to go. I love Amsterdam. It's an yeah. awesome city. Get some tulips, get some 
Rand, random stuff over there. Good, yeah. good city. I've been there a lot. Um, Dom Square and good old days. But, um, you know, it was an interesting meeting. You're right, because like, we weren't networking. We weren't um, interacting with people. But um, I felt like I was like uh, like in a class. Like I was in education mode. I was, That's exactly. I was like focusing. Uh, it was... I hadn't, I hadn't done that in a while. In some ways it was better for learning because I really right. could pay attention. Um, I could kind of swim in and out of things. And, you know, actually I was texting with people about the meeting, um, you know, some grad students and, and mentees, for example. Um, but I think it was overall a really well put together meeting. And um, uh, I, I hope we learn from it and, you know, to engage, you know, tens of thousands of people instead of several thousand people, uh, you know, I think it's good for the field. Um, yeah, let's, let's talk about the Diane 2 study. Um, you know, the critical questions to me um, was um, the, the, the design of the study, the, you know, it was supposed to, you know, it was a five to seven year study. Um, there were so many strengths of the study. The study was in some ways set up for success, but what do you think about, I guess the, the thing that was kind of staring at me in the face was, were these the right drugs to use? Were, and, and not just that, but were they the right dose? You know, the Diane 2 trial increased the dose of solanuzumab uh, fourfold and gantarunumab fivefold um, a couple of years ago. I think it was like the summer of, of 2017, uh, which was midway through the trial. And was that too little too late? And this was, you know, based on, um, you know, for solanuzumab, for example, uh, the Expedition 1, 2, and 3 studies that just showed, you know, maybe this just wasn't, you know, wasn't high enough dose, it's not going to do enough. Well, what do you think the failure means in terms of the dose versus drug versus study design versus something else? Yeah, so my interpretation is this choice of drug is where I start to get challenged. I think the dosing readjustment has actually made sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Gantt can move amyloid a little better than Sola can. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that you have a, a class of patients that have an overproduction disease and you're trying to use a clearance-based mechanism to treat an overproduction disease. And the question, obvious question is, is that the right target? Uh, should you, instead of trying to remove the amyloid, should you be reducing the production? Uh, you know, uh, these kinds of things will happen when we start looking at API number one with the Colombian South American there's a worry that same thing could happen uh, in the South American cohort as it does with the Diane cohort. So the worry to me is that you are treating, you're, you should be hitting production rather than clearance. Um, I think uh, escalating the dose made sense. Um, and I, I you know, this are, tend to be younger, healthier people. So I think that they had the ability to, to handle the high dose. So I think the dosing wasn't the issue. It was the choice of the target. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's, that's helpful. But, you know, I can to that, Richard, is, of course, is that base inhibitors and gamma secretase inhibitors, which would be the al logical alternatives, haven't panned out to be safe or appropriate. So it's not like I can say, well, here, you use the wrong drug when the, the feasibly correct drug is not, reason is not really a good choice either. Yeah, and I guess, you know, I'm thinking back to uh, the A4 study um, for yeah. pre-symptomatic late-onset Alzheimer's disease uh, that, you know, wrapped up enrollment, um, you know, a couple of years ago now. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, we're kind of in the same boat with that study. Um, I, 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 I am hope, hopeful, but, but, but 
cautious and, and you know, a little worried that that study may not pan out either um, because of kind of the same, the same issues. Um, can you extrapolate between the findings of Diane 2, uh, and I, I don't, we don't like extrapolation because, you know, early onset genetic Alzheimer's disease in, is in my, um, I'll just say this is my personal opinion. I don't know if this is a scientific consensus opinion, but I think late onset Alzheimer's related to genetic factors, APOE, lifestyle, the whole mishmash of, of things. I think late onset Alzheimer's is a, uh, they're both eggs, but they're different eggs than the early onset forms, you know, and with Diane too, uh, they had, you know, uh, APP and presenilin carriers, for example, and other mutation carriers, whatever. But do you, could you extrapolate that, that these results are harbinger for bad news for the A4 study? I, I worry. I do worry. I share your worry. Uh, that that could be a portending a negative result in A4. Now, the fundamental issue for me is that uh, solanezumab, which is a very good drug insofar as it has a lower risk profile and side effects profile with less aria, uh, tends to have less amyloid removal because it targets monomeric A-beta. It doesn't seem to have the robust, consistent, amyloid PET results that BAN, 2401, GANT, and, uh, and aducanumab have. So if you look at those monoclones, they, they robustly move amyloid out of the brain consistently. SOLA, not as much. Uh, and so the question is, if they're not moving it out as much, there is the worry very, very clearly that you could have a re uh, replay of the Diane with the A4 data. And then the question then becomes, is the approach wrong, is the target wrong, or is the drug wrong, which will always, these kinds of questions will be thrown out. And I worry, I don't, I'm not sure that we've uh, settled that the approach is wrong. I think, you know, we have to think about that. Yeah, yeah, I am. Um yeah, I'm 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 disappointed, but also not not exactly surprised. Um, and I just hope that um, you know whether it's through secondary outcome measures and and you know more biomarker results that we get later or whatever it is that you know obviously we have to continue to learn from uh, and um, you know um, keep keep plugging away. Um, and we'll see we'll see what the the current studies um, that are either you know before the FDA now or the ongoing studies. Uh, that still need to be completed. Um, I hope hope that those um, uh, avenues are just a little bit more successful too. Yep. Yeah. Um, so let's let's switch gears a little bit. Um, let's talk about one of the bigger news um, topics uh, from the meeting: um, uh, the PTAL two seventeen uh, biomarker. And you yeah. know, when, when I see um, headlines uh, that in Alzheimer's that say game changer and all these things, I I don't want to say I've been jaded, but I, I you know I. I I'm, I'm, I'm cautious again, a little somewhat skeptical, but honestly, um, this biomarker um, has honestly tremendous potential for early recognition that this person is at really high risk. Now, um, you know, in our practice, I think you and I practice a little bit differently. Um, and, you know, we have, you know, two of the very few Alzheimer's prevention uh, clinical research centers um, in the country or really the world. Um, and, you know, we look at the disease in, in, in a different way where we look at the variety of risk factors from historical risk factors, medical history, family history. We look at genetics. Um, polygenic risk is super important and quite predictive. We look at, um, you know, 
the biomarkers of risk, like from high cholesterol to metabolism and insulin resistance and omega-3s. And then we also, you know, look at cognitive testing, you know, looking at cognitive tests using computer-based testing that the person has no symptoms, but we can recognize that something may be going on using validated tests. And we also, of course, look at brain imaging. So, uh, and this is people with preclinical uh, type illness, no symptoms, but we can, you know, identify that they may have some amyloid, uh, they may have glucose type metabolism, they may have, um, you know, volumetric loss in the hippocampus, which is an important, you know, biomarker of risk. So certain specialized centers can get a pretty reasonable sense of risk and, and trajectory using this entire, you know, uh, mishmash of, of tests, but there's, there are mishmash of tests, they're costly, they're, um, you know, they're hard to do, they're hard to interpret, need some you know, familiarity with them. How do you think the PTAL 217 blood biomarker, say it hits commercial availability in two years from now, um, <coughs> excuse me, do you think this is a game changer? Do you think this will, how this will, how will this biomarker um, impact um, clinical care? And um, do you think, will it, will it be utilized on a broad scale? So a lot to say here, uh, and uh, I think it's an important moment in the field and an important opportunity. Uh, so uh, I'm going to break it into the use in clinical practice before I use it in the prevention paradigm. In clinical practice, what we want are plasma biomarkers, uh, PTAU-217, PTAU-181, amyloid A-beta 42 to 40 ratio, there's even a talk about a 42 to tau ratio. The bottom line is, is that the negative predictive value is where we're going to be. I look at the P217 and P181 as uh, a PSA in a man or a hemoglobin A1C in a diabetic. If your value is normal, you do not have the target pathology, and that will exclude your your. Uh, your evaluation for moving to the next step. But if it's positive, then I think you'll escalate. So the symptom class, I believe right when we're doing our B12 and TSH, we're gonna draw a plasma biomarker. And if they have abnormalities, then we'll advance them to a PET scan, CSF test, et cetera. And if they don't, we'll say, hey, you know what? We're not sure this is Alzheimer's disease and therefore we're not gonna advance it uh, along. So I think the negative predictive value is where these tests are going to start. And so I think they will be very early into our clinical practice. And I will be an early adopter for sure because I've already started using it. There's one vendor already promoting a 42 to 40 ratio. Uh, um, so that's how I think it will be used. Um, now, the way you're using it or could use it is could it be a predictor? So if your value is abnormal and you're, norm and you're clinically presenting before you have symptoms, Yes, I believe it will be predictive of future pathology. I do not disagree, but I don't know if it's going to be used right out the gate that way. I don't. I think it has to be used in, in the diagnostic algorithm rather than as a predictor. I think predictor comes second to the diagnostic algorithm. So use it like a PSA. I think all these tests will be like a PSA. You know, a PSA, if it's abnormal or elevated, is not diagnostic for prostate cancer. It just means you need to be needing more evaluation. And I think that's where the field is going to go with the plasma biomarkers. Yeah, great. Yeah, and that's a great way to do it. I mean, in our, in our, I think when the, when the media um, gets a hold of this, when it's out from a commercial uh, standpoint, um, the amount of calls that we're going to get um, from people with 
dementia may certainly, uh, and they don't have a definitive diagnosis, we may certainly get calls from those folks. But we, I think, I think the, the, the largest audience of people that will want this test are people that have, you know, kind of the subjective cognitive impairment, very mild symptoms, or the people that are, you know, oftentimes, uh, unfortunately, in my opinion, called the worried well, where they think they may have something, but their tests are all normal. Um, and, you know, some of those people may truly have preclinical disease. So I, I think that um, our field is going to have to um, manage some of these very tricky decisions on when is the most optimal time to use a test like this and also, um, you know, who to give it to, because it does, it does, it, it, you know, in terms of the negative predictive value, I couldn't agree with you more, um, super important. And I think it will, you know, work its way into our, our typical diagnostic paradigm. Um, but, you know, the overutilization of this test, um, you know, are we opening a Pandora's box? There'll be questions of, okay, well, it's positive. What do we do next? Um, and it will be, um, it'll be an interesting uh, first six months, I think, after this uh, test is released for sure. Uh, and that's very important, uh, Richard. I think SMC is a great starting point, a subjective memory complaint. Uh, you know, the literature's swinging toward the uh, idea that people who complain about their memory we used to call them the worried well, but it turns out that after they were followed for years and decades, they predicted their changes before the tests did. So a plasma test like this could be a really important test. If it's, if it's negative, then you can reassure them, at least at this moment, there's no target pathology. But if it's abnormal, then you take their subjective memory complaint very seriously and do a further investigation. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I have the, you know, of course, these cases stick in your mind, but, you know, I've been following some of these, you know, quote unquote, worried well now, for, worried wells now for, you know, more than a decade, and, I mean, it's it's like invariably um, these worried wells that even had no pathology ten years ago, and even when we started getting some of these biomarker tests out from amyloid scans to whatever else, even spinal fluid tests something ends up developing later and you could say, oh, well, they're just age was the biggest risk factor. They were going to get it anyway. But I agree. I think um, for subjective memory complaints, um, uh, there's a whole category of people that this may be a good test for. Um, but of course, um, we'll need to, you know, uh, use it in clinical practice and see kind of where things go. Um, yeah. do, you, do you have a, a feeling on um, whether it's, uh, you know, PTAL 217, PTAL 181, um, and then, of course, you said there's there is currently a commercially available test that looks at a beta 42 to 40. Um, do you have a feeling which one's going to kind of be first to market, the best test, or is it just kind of just kind of wait and see? So uh, I think that uh, I'm, I've heard that C2N, a company out of St. Louis, already has clear certification for a 42 to 40. So I think the first iteration will be a uh, amyloid 42 to 40 ratio, but ultimately, I think what will happen is is that they will uh, put up a, a bundle, and maybe they'll have the 42 to 40 ratio and P tau 181 or 217, or some ratio of that of that of those four biomarkers. I don't know if they'll end up adding, you know, down the road uh, NFL and stuff like that, but uh, but I do think it'll have a combination of those four biomarkers. Yeah, and just for listeners, uh, NFL is a neurofilament light, which is um, a very interesting biomarker that 
Um, I, again, saw these um, headlines of game changer nature. Uh, and then when you dig into it, it just, it's just a little bit early, I, I think. Um, I think there's a lot of um, excitement about it and I think there's a lot of potential, but you know, some of the basic things like how long do you store the sample for? What is the validity in different labs? What are the, the how do you run it in different, different ways? So I think um, the field of AD biomarkers is rapidly evolving. And if you had to guess, are you saying two, two years we're gonna have these um, tests? commercially available and easily accessible, plus or minus? I'd say earlier than that. I think we could see a 42 to 40 ratio in the clinic uh, within six to 12 months. Uh, I'm not sure how how easy it is to roll out the PTAL 217. The, the part of these uh, challenges, Richard, are gonna be uh, not whether the biomarker validity is there, but uh, can you scale up the assays? So there are three platforms that are commonly looked at right now, the Samoa platform, the Squid IMR platform, and Mass Spec. And all of them are elegant, very sophisticated, very, you know, very uh, uh, capable of detecting target biomarkers. But the question then is, can you scale them up to run hundreds or thousands of tests a day, and what's the turnaround? And I'm not sure the field is quite ready for that scale yet. So we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one other study that came across at AAIC this year um, was some potentially encouraging results with plasma exchange. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, there's um, a lot of interesting components of uh, and potentially therapeutic components of plasma. Um, and, you know, plasma exchange has really been used for, you know, ages and ages to treat a variety of neurological disorders, immunological conditions. You know, treatment including plasmapheresis, uh, you know, separate the plasma from the blood cells, remove, um, remove some stuff, put some stuff back in. Um, and the albumin in the plasma to which the plasma amyloid beta is bound um, could potentially be replaced with uh, fresh albumin uh, made from healthy donors. And, and this, this was a really interesting research hypothesis. And this study, um, you know, took a look at this. Um, any comments about uh, the, the readout from this study? Yes, yeah, so this is a study that's been going on for a while. It's called the AMBAR program. Uh, it's been run out of Spain by the group Griffles. Uh, Griffles turns out to be the biggest uh, albumin supplier in the world. Uh, and I was trying to ask them, so how do, you, how do you protect this? What's proprietary about it? And they have nothing to protect because the, they can't, you could use any off-the-shelf albumin. But the idea is that you, you, you do a plasma exchange and replace it with fresh albumin. And the idea is that you're essentially uh, plasma freezing all of your amyloid out of your body. And it turns out that their science suggests that albumin oxidizes and that you, when you put in unoxidized, you're essentially replacing the, pla the blood components with fresher, healthier, younger blood components. Uh, and their preliminary data was pretty interesting. Uh, uh, and the, what makes this very interesting, Richard, is that this would become a protocol, not a drug. There would be nothing to protect, uh, essentially. They would just, uh, you have a protocol and you would do it. The problem, of course, is that it's invasive, uh, it's expensive. This kind of protocol would be very expensive and would be kind of an ongoing thing. It would not be a one-and-done type scenario. Um, but their data in moderate stage Alzheimer's that they first reported out in CTAD in Barcelona and now have follow-up data on suggest that they have a signal 
in moderate stage Alzheimer's. So we will see. Some people are very skeptical about it, but I, I, I tend to be agnostic, and I think it's very interesting data. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, there's um, a variety of components of, of transfusion medicine that, um, you know, I am far, far, far from an expert here, but um, I feel that there are, there's a lot of potential um, for these types of approaches. And, you know, I, I understand, you know, any, first of all, moving the needle in moderate Alzheimer's disease is just a very difficult needle to move. That's um, correct. So I have, I have empathy in terms of any therapeutic out there. Um, but, you know, looking at even potentially MCI, you know, mild AD, even even the earlier clinical states, um, you know, I, I agree with you. This is not just like you go home, take a pill. This is a real, um, this is a real protocol with, right. you know, having to come back. I think in the study um, for six weeks, the patients had weekly um, infusions and then 12 months, it was monthly. Um, so, you know, this is... Um, you know, it's a fair amount of visits over the year, especially, you know, with COVID-19 over the coming months still, um, you know, roaring away in certain places. Um, you know, it's, it, these, these types of things are tricky. There's an expense to it. Not all neurology clinics have an infusion center. The, right. the MS centers do, but not necessarily the, uh, the cognitive centers. Maybe that'll change as, as new FDA approved drugs hopefully come on the market in the future. But I agree. I think this is interesting. Um, but in terms of reimbursements, I don't, I don't see a, an, a, an easy path forward for reimbursement of this. And do you think, um, I, I only really actually know one uh, physician that's kind of done s stuff in the, I guess what I would call it off-label sort of way in their own, their own private clinic. But um, I mean, most people wouldn't even really even go there at all. But what, do you think doctors are going to be trying this and, and with, with desperate patients, or do you think we're just still a little far away from that? So uh, it's a great question. Uh, and the other added complication, Richard, is that uh, usually plasma exchange involves a portacath or something like that. So, you know, it's not just an IV infusion. In many cases, you need something akin to dialysis. It's, it's more invasive. Yeah. And that adds its own set of risks and infections. Um, uh, uh, but I, I still, uh, I think the adoption, I think physicians might be a little skeptical. I think, you know, monoclonal infusions, I think people will feel a little more comfortable with. Um, you know, we're all trained as neurologists to give uh, uh, plasma change for things like Guillain-Barre. But that's an acuity issue, right? So these are patients coming in with an acute neurological illness uh, and getting an acute treatment for an acute neurological illness. The, in order for physicians to believe it, they have to uh, buy into the idea that you, you would do it a, in a way that is not treating an acute illness, but a chronic illness. Um, and I, I suspect that it, there might be some use, but I don't know if it's going to be widespread. Uh, because of the, you know, if physicians are reluctant to give lumbar punctures for for Alzheimer's, right? They'll do a lumbar puncture for MS and 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 uh, and, and meningitis, but they're reluctant to do a lumbar puncture for Alzheimer's. Wouldn't they be a little bit reluctant to do a very invasive and very expensive uh, procedure? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. Okay, so transitioning a little bit, um, there was a lot, as usual, um, you know, a few years ago, that was the first time I think they even had like a prevention um, risk reduction um, theme 
at AAIC, and that's that's exciting. But this year there was again a kind of an onslaught of of, of data out there. Um, there was one which was a little uh, maybe tricky to pin down a mechanism, but um, people that got uh, influenza uh, vaccination and pneumococcal vac vaccines um, had a reduced AD incidence, and even with pneumococcal pneumococcal vaccine, they'll actually had um, there was you know, specific genes, you know, not, not having a specific Tom 40 um, uh, gene actually um, increased the likelihood that it would work. So that's interesting. Um, but, but really going, you know, in terms of the modifiable risk factors and, and looking at risk factors for Alzheimer's disease and, 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 and dementia, um, looking at it from the whole life spectrum, the life course uh, spectrum, early life, midlife and late life. And um, the, the number of studies that have come out, the number of risk factors identified, there was a lot of new, new uh, work that came out with sleep, not just about total numbers of sleep, but sleep, sleep traits, sleep quality. Um, we're really getting to the point in terms of risk reduction where we can um, fine tune our understanding of why a person may be on the road to Alzheimer's disease then if we can figure that out, we can hopefully try to get them off that road. And honestly, this, this probably needs to be starting um, um, maybe from the womb even, or even before that, you know, even the, the, the food a pregnant mother eats uh, affects the cognitive outcomes of their babies later. Um, so, I mean, I think Alzheimer's and cognition is truly life course. Um, what were some of the key findings that you saw um, from, a, from a risk factor standpoint um, that, that caught your eye? Yeah, and I, your your opening remarks here are exactly uh, on point, Richard. Uh, we have looked at Alzheimer's disease as a age-targeted, age-related condition, but we are now starting to realize that you know uh, when you come into the clinic with the symptoms of Alzheimer's dementia, you've had pathology accumulating in your brain uh, for twenty years or more, and now we're starting to realize that the lifetime risks might be even preceding those accumulation of amyloid pathology. So the latest data suggests that morbid obesity or obesity early in life, we're not talking middle age, okay? The data on obesity and risk factor for Alzheimer's, obesity and other health conditions and later life Alzheimer's was established a few years ago, but they've now moved the, the clock even earlier into young life, suggesting that obesity and morbid obesity were risk factors for Alzheimer's later on in life. So that's a big deal. And then they also talked about the quality of education. We've always felt like high education was protective in a way, and they went back and traced the fact that the, the quantity and quality of education early in life had influence on risk and outcomes later in life. So we, what we're now starting to say is that if this is a lifetime issue and not an end-of-life issue or later-in-life issue. Yeah, and you know, when I started that um, crazy Alzheimer's prevention clinic back in 2013, uh, I mean, heck, I'm still getting tomatoes thrown at me. I was getting tomatoes and garbage cans thrown at me back then. Um, but you know, our, our initial age of entry was 40. And then I had this uh, very nice, uh, charismatic, nice guy, this 32-year-old guy. I was taking care of his mom and he said, can I come in? And I said, okay, we got to change our IRB. Okay, fine. And he comes in. And then we had a 29-year-old and now we see patients 25 and up. Um, and it's funny, I, I, had a, I had a pediatrician reach out to me about someone in their teens. You know, they were concerned their mom had Alzheimer's, should, should, her, should, should teenagers be doing something? And I, I feel like um, the, now that the evidence has truly come around, I, I, I believe that the earlier we intervene, the better we can do, you know? And then when it comes down to obesity, for example, there's sex differences. So in, in women, for example, abdominal obesity, not just understanding what a person's weight is, but, you know, 
doing weight, weight to, you know, weight to, uh, you know, ju not just weight and height and BMI, but truly looking at, you know, a waist to hip circumference, for example, is your belly right. size larger now than it was in high school or college? And if it was, if you have abdominal obesity, women are 39% more likely to develop dementia later. I mean, those numbers yeah. are striking. So getting down into the devil is in the details with this. Um, and understanding, you know, for example, social determinants of health, that one study showed that, you know, honestly, the quality of the school, like what the school, the schools were ranked in, in, in you know, the state rankings and whatnot. I mean, that's fascinating. I'd never really, you know, seen something like that before. Um, so I think it opens up an avenue and, you know, some of the work, um, you know, we've recently done is trying to get um, education out there for high school age kids um, uh, and college kids. And we did a study just published in neurology about educating high school and college uh, students about brain health and that you could actually learn uh, about brain health early on. So hopefully one of these days in health class, um, people aren't just learning about, you know, how bad smoking is and, and how bad, you know, um, heart disease is, but, you know, that brain health is just a part of the conversation and hopefully it, you know, moves the needle on risk later because uh, the Lancet 2020 commission just came out and now it's up to 40% of Alzheimer's cases, cases can be attributed to modifiable risk factors. I mean, uh, hey, if we can, through modifiable risk, get rid of 40% of cases, that's just, um, you know, that's just tremendous on our healthcare system and quality yeah. of life. Yeah, astounding. Yeah. Um, what did you think about some of the sleep um, data that came out with, with risk? Um, and we can wrap up here, but um, <clears throat> there was some interesting data about um, sleep um, and, and not just, again, a total duration of sleep, uh, but, but the quality and, and, and things like that. Any, any comments about sleep? Yeah, so there's a growing literature about Alzheimer's and sleep risk. Uh, quality of sleep, we know mechanistically that the Alzheimer's is, um, uh, uh, that amyloid turnover is influenced by the quality of sleep. So the AAIC data on sleep clearly augments a, a growing body of literature about the fact that uh, uh, sleep quality, sleep quantity matters. Basically, too much sleep and not enough sleep. And there is a kind of a sweet spot uh, of how much sleep you should have and how quality of sleep should be had. But those, uh, the advantage, of course, Richard, is that that, bec that itself becomes a modifiable risk factor. Yeah. And so... I think that uh, uh, it, it adds to what we've already known, uh, but uh, it strengthens it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, getting this objective data, you know, all of our patients, we recommend these sleep trackers, whether it's a wrist right. tracker or a ring or whatever the jour the person would prefer. Um, you know, people may think they sleep seven hours or may sleep, think they sleep, whatever. But when you start getting, and these devices are, are far from perfect, but, you know, just to understand how much time in bed, how much restlessness sleep, um, you know, the total hours of sleep, even though you're in bed for nine hours, you may get seven hours of sleep. Um, so I think, I think our, our field will advance in that, in that sense. So, okay, well, uh, Marwan, that was um, terrific. I, I think we had a really nice um, uh, general overview. We made a lot of good advances at AEIC 2020, and uh, I look forward to 2021 and beyond. Yes. Cool. Okay, well, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. It's been a, another uh, excellent discussion on this uh, podcast, uh, scientific updates to improve outcomes in patients with Alzheimer's disease, strategies to care for Alzheimer's patients during COVID-19. Thanks so much.